I am joined by Kane McGookin. Kane is a data strategist, kind of financial advisor, blend at Arcos Global Advisors, and has a unique background with finance, business administration, paper with computer science. He hosts the Navigating Bitcoin Noise podcast and has some incredible conversations. So I would highly recommend checking that out. He also writes on Substack for the Mesh Point. Uh, Kane, thank you so much for joining me. Isaiah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, you know, I always enjoy these, especially from our side of the fence where we're kind of traditional guys coming from the wealth management arena and talking about Bitcoin, which, uh, you know, these days can be a challenge uh, as it always is in bear markets. But uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've known each other through Twitter only, and this is the first time we've been able to, I guess, you know, e-meet or chat. So it's always nice to to do that and and connect. But I guess starting with going from traditional lens and that being kind of the world you've lived in, and then Bitcoin, there's a lot of folks that they've heard about it for a long time, but they will continue to say, eh, not my thing, or I'm not interested, or there's all these different issues. What was kind of your journey and how did you get to the point where you're like, hey, this Bitcoin thing might have legs. It's interesting. I'm going to you know talk positively about it or you know just put some money there. Yeah. I mean, I think I came across it very early um, at that point. I'd gone from wealth management to institutional equity sales. It was maybe it was sometime prior to that first kind of twenty thirteen bull run. So um I did like everybody else, dismissed it, you know, coming from kind of wealth management, Wall Street background. There's no way anybody's gonna create something that's better than what these guys are doing and what's been going on for hundreds of years. And I had a friend who was on Wall Street. And, and those were the guys I talked to at that point in time. And um, said, hey, what do you think about this? A lot older than me, a lot more experienced. Oh, that's that's kind of dumb. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's just dumb internet uh, nerd money. Um, won't be a thing. It'll be out of business, you know, for whatever in a short time. Um, that was when Bitcoin was around 200, that conversation. Uh, went to 1300 over the next couple of months. I was like, wow, that was dumb. Um, you know, bad move. Then it went down to 200 again, sat there for two years. Um, and, and so the moment for me was game day. I think I'd said this before, possibly on, on my podcast. So if I'm repeating for anybody, um, sorry about that. But on game day, I think, I think it was actually at Auburn, which is where I graduated from. Um, a kid held up one of the signs that said, mom, send me. And he crossed out money and it had the QR code. Um, and then had the Bitcoin sign. And I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, by the end of the weekend, the kid apparently had something like $25,000. So all the quote unquote nerds in the garages doing nerdy things, sent the guy 25 grand by the end of the weekend. I was like, wow, people just took a still frame image from somewhere they weren't and sent someone value. And so I was like, that changed the game because if I wanted to pay a wall or a pole or some other machine, I could. And that's not something that, you know, still really we do all that much today. And that was, I don't know, 11, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, so that was game changer for me. And I was like, eh, maybe something's wrong here. You know, fast forward, kind of dismiss it for a little while until somewhere around 2016, 2017. And at that point, I had gotten back into wealth management on the RIA side, which is independent. And so you have a lot more freedom to kind of think outside of the box. You're not, everything's not passed down to you. This is just the way it is because it has been and this is how it's going to be. Um, and at that point, I really started looking at it 
more from a computer science background and kind of understanding it from that perspective. And then, you know, I came through a great financial crisis, came into the business early 2006. Uh, We ran portfolios, equities, options, fixed income, trade all the different asset classes, did all the research. Um, And so I had a good feel for kind of how markets work. And because I came through that environment, I was like, well, if the world's blowing up, I got to understand like what the, what the piping is, how it works, who the players are, why they're, you know, what these credit default swaps are, why they're pairing off these institutions. And so that was kind of 2007 to 2010 going down the rabbit hole of like, what is money? Why is it important? Um, and you kind of get off that path once the world starts to work again. But then here we were kind of 2015, 16, 17, and all that started to pop up again. And so I had a head start from that point of just something I had done a decade prior. And so I just kind of picked up where it left off and I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole from there. I think the what is money and kind of digging in for most advisors, it's just like, well, that's too basic and they don't start there. But I would encourage everyone to kind of, you know, just sit in that and think about it for a little bit because it is interesting. I know a lot of Bitcoin folks and especially if you get on Bitcoin Twitter will, you know, throw that out there. There's been tons of conversations and I've been very um, open about, like, I don't think I understood it for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Even working within kind of financial services, it was like, oh no, that's just how it works. And I I love the way that you talked about it because I started at, you know, B of A, Merrill Lynch um, in 2015. And it was like, that was never you know, that, that was never part of the education, right? It was definitely more of a, a sales environment. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think is super interesting with your background is the finance and the technical computer science piece, because I think most people come either from the tech side into Bitcoin or the monetary policy side. And um, you've kind of ha- been able to see it from both lenses. Is there mm-hmm. one that you think is stronger that helped you kind of firm up Bitcoin? Or was it, hey, this is a nice balance between the two? I, I think I would have to weigh that the real answer on those that kind of see me every day and can say you're better at this or than the, at that. Um, I think to your point, that's why I started navigating Bitcoin's noise. The podcast was because I had both backgrounds. I can go and talk to developers. I can go and talk to people that we showed around, which were Wall Street analysts, and have real conversations with them. And that was most of my kind of early career. So what I saw when I came in the space was an immature crowd that doesn't know, and I don't mean that negatively, but just doesn't have experience in the markets. They don't know how a trade happens. They don't know the steps you have to go to. They don't know what happens when a trade fails, what happens when one institution's net short uh, overnight or whatnot. And so that was kind of the Bitcoin developer community. Um, yes, they understand Bitcoin very well, but I think some of the pits or fits and starts that we're seeing now and we've seen over the 14 years is just that lack of understanding how money actually works and and what that means for different people. And yeah, we all know the power struggle, but like don't fundamentally really understand it. And then on the, you know, traditional financial side, it's everything that might cause a problem for fees and, and the sales side of it gets kiboshed. And so it's that ultimate power control. And they're like, we're not interested in anything new until we can figure out how to capture and put a fee on it. And yes, we'll we'll do good things. But generally speaking, we don't really care about money. We care about creating asset classes that we can use to push products to a client base. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just the reality of it. So to me, there was a big void in the middle. 
And so I just said, well, um, it started with a podcast with Jimmy Song that was, um, you know, there's a lot to Bitcoin that has kind of spiritual philosophical points, foundations. And, and that's really, if you read Ray Dalio and you read his work and you kind of look at civilizations and money over time, when those foundations erode, you get in these kinds of environments. And so I was like, okay, well, there's a gap between the Bitcoiners and the TradFi entities and, and individuals. And let's just see if I can marry them together. And so through a tweet, got in touch with Jimmy. He was pushing or not pushing, but he was uh, coming out with a book, Thank God for Bitcoin, um, had spent at that point or either going into it a, a little over a year into a men's group Bible study. Um, Hassan Boyle went all online. Um, and well, we were in person, but it, it, it's available online. And so we talked about money for 52 weeks, but the whole time we were never mm. talking about money. And so I got invited there um, through a business partner and I was two or three classes in and I was like, I already know where he's going. Not that I just know what he's doing, but I'm like, this is the 10 years prior figuring out what money is. This is Bitcoin. And, you know, 42, 45 weeks later, um, we get to the end and we finally start talking about money. And so those three things kind of shape, you know, my perspective on things. And that's what I try to share. So uh, I think over the last couple of years, that gap has closed between Bitcoin devs and TradFi. And um, I think long run Bitcoin becoming that financial network that it can be, that gap will continue to close. Um, so hopefully that answered, I know it was a little bit long, but hopefully that kind of answered the question. Um, I, I just try to be objective and look at what we know, how it's played out. History repeats itself over and over the times when people change, but, um, you know, the realities of what happens doesn't, I mean, the whole Luna FTX debacle is just like a thousand percent, like any other crisis, 1907, 1913, 1917, 1929, 1987, all of them, you know, 2007 is exactly the same. And, and this time it's just a new asset class having their kind of failure moment that puts them on the map. Yeah. The thank God for Bitcoin podcast, I'll give a plug. Cause it's really good. I think Jordan Bush is the, the host for that. And I've listened to it. I know that it's newer as of, I think, this summer, um, starting to have some episodes. It's been really good for those that are interested because I think there is, I would agree, uh, some ties there and I've listened to a ton of Bitcoin content, right? And so at some mm -hmm. point it's like, okay, I've kind of felt like I've maxed out that, but it, like that whole lens has been really fun to to get into um, and, and look at it in a different way. I think there's another one. It's like Bitcoin in the Bible, which has been a group of guys. So like three or four guys that mm -hmm. go in there. That's been really good. Um, but going back to kind of the traditional world um, and thinking about roles changing over time with Bitcoin adoption, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think that's one key thing that I've tried to explain to peers, right? That are RAs that are advisors out there and saying, this Bitcoin thing doesn't make you extinct. It's going to change your role. And there's lots of cool opportunities to learn, to navigate, to actually, you know, enhance the client experience and also come alongside and like be the trusted relationship as you go through. Because I think it's going to be hard to ask everyone to go from you know zero to hero by themselves, and they might want someone to help them with that. Um, what do you see? How do you think about what the world might look like into the future with, you know, I guess advisors, Bitcoin adoption, clients, and that relationship? Yeah, I think that's where if you look at technology innovation, how it impacts the world. Um, I had a 
podcast with Mark Yusko, and I think he brought up Kathy Wood once was in our office. Um, you know, it was a kind of a group meeting, so it wasn't one-on-one or anything. But the common denominator for them is that when technology comes into space, and uh, there's plenty of books and other people that say it, there's actually more of the thing that it disrupts, not less. So everybody thinks you bring in the ATM, you know, uh, people inside the bank going to go away. Well, there's more banks today than there was when the ATM came to play. The services change based on what the technology brings. So I think, um, you know, banking has always existed, well, since the 1300s, 1400s, and it never goes away. Components that don't make sense go away and, and friction gets removed and new technologies make those things work better. So long run, I think that Bitcoin has the opportunity to make, you know, a lot of the friction in banking go away. It's just what is that going to look like? And that's the power struggle, right? Who's going to get to uh, call the shots and who's not? And and what part of banking and commerce and business can happen in a truly, you know, trust and untrusted environment, right? And who... You know, for for bankers, it's hard to relinquish that power, and uh, because they're always looking at and like knowing whoever controls the money controls the people, right? From the people side, they're just like, look, I just want to live, I just want to do these things, live, and so um, I think when we get to the other side, this technology will make transfer of value better. Um, it might get nasty in the middle, and so um, I think that's the big question. You know, from my perspective, what I do, we will work with high net worth clients and then they're interested in Bitcoin, but by and large, they're interested in wealth preservation. And so you can't go 80, 100 percent long in some asset that's down 80 percent. Right. You could at the bottoms and you could say, well, I'll sell the tops. But reality is like nobody's great at that. There are a handful of people you know, the greatest hedge fund managers in the world. But when you, and this is really part of where my study started in 2005, six, seven, eight was like, Hey, I'm going to go get the classics. I'm going to learn what these guys did. And really when you pull it all down, not to like take away from any of them, because they were all great, but most of them, it was some form of cornering a market inside information. Um, you know, they made trades before the markets came and they used that as their excellent liquidity kind of what we saw with FTX. Um, So they go in these environments where there's not much regulatory oversight. They apply the tactics that have been applied for hundreds of years, and then they exit, right? And maybe they pay a little fine here or there. I mean, you know, Wall Street went away with 2007, all the leverage and rehypothecation. We saw, well, most of that just moved to Europe on the insurance side of things, right? They can use the term guarantee. We can't. But the reality is there's a lot of leverage built up in those institutions. Hedge funds went away. Uh, Stevie Cohen, those guys, John Paulson with mortgage crisis. When you bury it down, they all just paid fines and said, "Fine, we'll we'll set up a family office and only manage our money." So, hedge funds basically no longer exist, right? Because of the rules that they kind of skirted for for decades. And I'm not saying those specifically, but they all paid fines and said, "We'll just restructure our business." So, um, you know, now we kind of enter in that point is. We'll have more bankers if everybody's doing banking on their phone, right? Do they really need somebody uh, to call and say, do this wire or do that when they can kind of transact on their phone? Because we're all pretty competent uh, from that form. Um, How we got here was sort of 
debt and leverage on these second and third world countries. Well, most of the utility and the innovation that's happening in Bitcoin and Lightning or in stable coins or in, for the godforsaken word, crypto, right, is happening in these countries that were impoverished because of what happened with Bretton Woods and how the dollar came to 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 rise. And so in this next technological wave, wave of innovation, do we see a Bretton Woods 2.0 where these th- second, third world countries can step out from under that debt load to better themselves, to take advantage of the resources that they have that the developed nations are, are, have used for 50, 100 years. Um, so I think that's what's important. I think banking will continue to exist. The way that we bank will drastically change. Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you think, so talking about kind of Bretton Woods 2.0, do you think other countries will uh, kind of do- adopt Bitcoin legal tender style like El Salvador? Have you been surprised that it's been slower? Do you think it makes sense? Um, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I am very surprised it's been slower. Um, Me too, Because, actually. yeah, it, it seems like the clear opportunity, but I think that's just classic cartel and cronyism. You know, you find out who's connected by the people that won't move. Uh, because if countries are supposed to be for their people and you have better options, but you're not necessarily moving towards those options, you have to just start to ask why. And you have to go to, each layer, why, 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 until you get to the real reason. I don't know what the real reason is, but, you know, if you live in the Western, in a Western country like the United States, there's 10 other ways to pay people that's easier and faster and cheaper. Now, if you live in a third world country, there aren't 10 other ways. And so you're going to use the fastest, cheapest way to do it, which right now is some form of Bitcoin, stable coins, lightning. And you're seeing that utility get baked out in a world where it is expensive. I, ju- I just looked um, the other day. So I do a trade and I transfer some money and it basically was a 5% deal. Sure, you can mess around with, with your transaction fees and this, that, and the other. But the reality is it's not that cheap. Now, there's a bunch of embedded cost in saving in a depreciating asset, spending that depreciating asset with debit and credit cards, which have fees that you don't really see other than the marked two or 3%. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of the challenge here in kind of developed nations that we have to solve, but it seems to be very much solving real problems in these, these lesser nations. I want to go back to the wealth preservation comment you made and just mm-hmm. what, what has been as much as you want to share or can share on those conversations with Bitcoin questions or how Bitcoin plays in the wealth preservation, or how do you think about that? Because saying preservation and wealth in Bitcoin, most mm-hmm. people are going to say, uh, Isaiah King, uh, there, there's no preservation of wealth with, with Bitcoin. And I would push back on that, but I'm curious what you would say. Yeah, I think you break it down to uh, the three main points of money, medium exchange, you know, to account store value. So if we look at our options, I think we all have to just objectively say, what are our options, especially in a time like now where a lot of things don't make sense. Chaos geopolitically rivals that of the 1930s and the 1970s. And so when you look at that and you say, all right, what's going on? I've got gold as a choice, great store of value, proven hundreds of years, can't argue it. Um, dollars, 
terrible store of value, great medium of exchange, poor unit of account, gold, poor unit of account. Then you've got Bitcoin uh, has proven over 14 years to be a great store of value. Um, sort of can do medium exchange, but there's lots of problems with it relative to the other two options, right? Similar to that of gold. So I think, interestingly enough, and this is the difference between money and wealth, everybody's chasing a money problem. You see fiat brain all over Bitcoin in the last year and a half. I mean, you're seeing it now. It's just everybody's like, when's this bear going to be over? Well, if you look at the bear, we're 600 and something days in. Based on the other three cycles, we've still got another year to go, right? And so it just feels worse because we went from 60 to 15,000. That's not much different than going from 20,000 to eight, back to 12, back to three, right? And so these cycles are very similar, uh, but we have allowed our emotions to get tied to the money side instead of thinking about the wealth side. And so the difference is you you have to, and this is some of what I've referenced earlier is immaturity. It's not immature in a sense of, you know, being, being dumb for, for lack of better words. It's immature from just saying, I'm a 22 year old that doesn't have a wife, kids, a house, you know, the reality that you got to do something for a job because your parents aren't supporting half your life or just your life is so cheap because you're one person. Uh, so that maturity is when you start to realize all these other things that happen and you have to have different monies to pay for these things where your life just keeps getting more expensive. And it's not from an inflationary perspective that definitely has a component of it, but it's because you're bringing other people into your life. And so you have a different set of set of choices to make with a different set of consequences. So when you look at it that way, uh, you can throw stocks in there. They are, they are money because we put money in stocks, put dollars in stocks, trade other stocks for stocks to create more value in the future. And if you just leave your money in stocks, it'll grow at about 8% a year over you know, 100 years is actually like 10 now. But um, So it becomes money when you say, I need a car. I don't have dollars. I don't have gold. I don't have Bitcoin. I have this Charles Schwab account that has money in it. And so you sell, you pay the tax, and you go buy the car. So anything that we use is money, but but wealth is about preserving value across time. And there are lots of different ways to do that. Again, if you bought gold in the 1920s and, and you bought stocks, the stocks would be up 52,000%. Gold is relatively up about four or 500%. So if you just bought gold and just hung on to the store of value, you'd be really mad. Now, if you went headlong in stocks, you probably went broke three or four times, if not uh, more than that. So there's some kind of balance between these monetary units that we have to decide how does that fit in the wealth picture that I'm trying to achieve with my life. And and wealth isn't having a million dollar a year salary or $400,000 a year salary. It's not having $10 million in the bank. It's living a life with the resources and abilities that you've been given to be the best you you can. I know that sounds a little bit philosophical and a little bit silly, but like wealth is, is the time that we have here for some people it's 10 years, for some people it's 30, for some people it's a hundred. And we, none of us know when that, that exit's going to happen. And so 
the wealth is like what we do with what we have to live the life we desire in the best, best way that we can. And so the preservation part comes from monetarily wealthy individuals. They sit back and think, how do I keep this so I don't have to work harder or so that my kids start better than I do. Right. And at the end of the day, that it's still kind of less of a wealth thing and more of a money thing, but that's, the way that wealthy individuals think they don't YOLO into Bitcoin. Um, clients from that standpoint kind of view it emotionally. And so in 2021, 2022, Bitcoin's all time high. Everybody's like, why don't we own this? How do we own this? And then now fast forward to now, everybody's like, I, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Look, it's down 80%. Why would I ever own that? Um, the only challenge I have there is look at every crash in stocks. Why did we ever buy that again? Because psychologically, the masses have said stocks are okay. And and they're like, well, Warren Buffett says when there's blood, you know, it wasn't him, but he quotes it a lot. When there's blood in the streets, go buy everything hand over fist. And so I think we're just kind of figuring that out with Bitcoin as as mass adoption happens. So the idea that, yeah, humans in being emotional investors doesn't change regardless of what we're owning. Mm -hmm. uh, I totally agree with that. And I love the term fiat brain. And I do think you're seeing that some. And the the thing I wanted to ask, you know, just thinking about kind of fiat, which I think that term was never in the lexicon of many people five years ago. And now you hear lots of people talk about fiat, which I think is actually really Something that's been a positive coming from some of the Bitcoin space is making people start to ask and like hear that. No, not everyone's saying like, hey, what kind of car, right? They're not going mm -hmm. back to the car reference with fiat. Um, but thinking about fiat in this idea of the next generation and wealth preservation and building kind of strong families, I view that, and I'll kind of give my take, is that the current structure of what I would say is not free and open markets as much has damaged that to where people are so focused on just getting by that they're not able to think the vast majority, right? There's super wealthy families out yeah, there. Yeah, no, but, I agree. Yeah. Um, it's, it's shrunk the idea of how do I set up my kids? And you see the studies in so many, call it millennials or Gen Z, they're going to be worse off than their parents, right? Mm -hmm. like you see those studies and it's like, why? Because there's all this wealth, there's all these things that are created, technology is so much better, yet we can't seem to, to figure it out. And uh, to me, it goes back to money, but any thoughts, anything that you've looked into or studies or your own take on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what we do um, on the RIA side is is how much is enough? How do I not mess up my kids by giving them 10 million bucks, 5 million bucks at 18, 25? Uh, how do you bring them into the picture to explain? And that's where the values and principles of money come into play because money isn't, what you can buy or having a nice house or having expensive vacations. It's understanding just the basic foundations, which are biblical in nature. Um, not to like sidetrack on the spiritual side of things, but it's using money to build better life through your habits, to be the best you, to be the best, to, to help other people in the community, to build the best communities. And so like, as you go down that curve, of money and you go from a sound asset gold to a sort of sound asset dollar back gold or gold back dollars. And then you go to a non-sound asset. It was like this dollar that we just printed a bazillion of, 
right? And and that story plays over and over and over and over. Um, I think Bitcoin is great. I think Bitcoin is in the sound stage. I think one of the qualities of Bitcoin is that it allows us that, you know, proof of reserves, proof which will help credit and lending on an instantaneous basis. Credit is not bad, but once you get credit to leverage, it's over. Um, at some point, 70, 100, 200 years from now, Bitcoin probably gets levered. It's already got levered in 2021, 2022. Uh, probably gets levered to that point where it's broken and the new money comes in. But you and I don't have to worry about that. Most people listening won't have to worry about that because because of our age. So that where the kids and family come into play is exactly where we're at. And if you read the fourth turning, now the fourth turning is here. That's the cycle unfortunately that we're in that's the opportunity that we you know live in as we're growing up in this this part where you'll have this crisis they talk about it in that book dalio has talked about it i mean if there's one person that's been more right than anybody else that i've looked at is dalio and he started in 2015 or so releasing his works maybe a little bit earlier releasing his works his books all focus on this idea of you know, the cyclical nature of time and, and human civilization and money. And, and we're at that point where some crisis creates this massive divide that resets. And, and we're in that point where people are starting to focus on family again. You know, productivity's declined every year since the 80s, basically. Um, our lives have gotten seemingly better because of technology and and, and money, but the family side of things have just been on a massive de decline. And so I think wealthy individuals think more about how do we preserve those belief systems so that these torch carriers that come behind us will restart because at some point we do do a restart. And, and those kids and the younger members of the family tree have to carry the torch forward, which if you kind of believe in the fourth turning stuff, that means we will come back to a more community driven environment and it's going to take strong foundations, uh, which will come from those kids that will lead us into the next wave, which continues on and on and on again. Uh, hopefully that answered it without being too uh, That's perfect. circular. No, it's and to me, like you can look at Twitter and it can be doom and gloom. But when you hear something like that, and I, I think, uh, I can't think of the quote right now. I know Marty Bent, who has a podcast, talked about it. But basically, like, if there's trouble, let it be in my day um, versus my kid's day. Like, let's address it versus mm -hmm. kicking the can. And that's, I think, one of my biggest frustrations is you, know, you have all these people. And I think as you get older, um, when you're younger, you think everyone has all the answers. And you're like, oh, man, they're so smart. And then you, as you get older, like, hey, everyone's trying to figure this thing out, right? No one has all the answers. We're, yep. all, we're all kind of learning as we go at times in continuing to discover and learn. But it's like, let's address these major issues because instead of just kicking it, this is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And unless you believe that, you know, gravity doesn't matter, at some point, debt does come back to bite you in the butt. Mm -hmm. So like, let's address it. Let's make some hard decisions. And that's been the one nice thing is like, if all these things have to happen to get us back to something that's better, more community, more localized, you know, people taking care of themselves, their families, their community. To me, it's like, I'll sign up for that. Yeah, there's going to be a rough go for a while, but I think that sounds like something that needs to happen. And so like if the adults in the room need to to reshuffle, um, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about Bitcoin because it does offer that opportunity and, and guys like Marty Bent and doing kind of the energy and the mining and, and all that stuff. So if you think about you have these 
often you hear a circular economy. Well, what does that mean? Do we really need it? Well, if you're in a divisive time and there's going to be these divisions that naturally, because they do, it, populism is, is as wide as it is. Um, you know, I think we get caught looking at the political Republican versus Democrat or U.S. versus China or whatever is going on in Ukraine as being the divisive thing. But if you break it down, it's the money. And so if you have ultimately this just intense division where you have I'm a dollar user, or I'm a Bitcoin user. Right. And so you know where the 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 dollar economies are going to go. Now, it could still take 10 years, 30 years, 40 years, because if you hear a lot um, of people in the space talk about the, the, you know, all the other fiats have to collapse into the dollar because that's their base rate. Right. And so that can take decades. I mean, look at Rome, 300 years in money collapse. And I think it went on for another two or 300 years. Right. Look at uh, Britain. They collapsed in 1942. Right. And Bretton Woods set up in 44 and, and there was a new system, but they're still existing. The euro and the pound still exist or the pound um, euro was created later so that they didn't just fall off the face of the earth and it didn't just go to zero. Like those communities kept using those money units. And so the dollar could face the same thing. It could take another hundred years, who knows? Um, but where that community building point that you made. So if you, Let's just say some miners go set up by a waterfall or a you know gas place where they're pulling gas out of the ground using using all the excess gas to run miners and whatnot, and then somebody puts stores next to them and they only accept Bitcoin. They don't really accept. It. You'll have these foundational communities and parts of the United States that nobody lives in because it's cheap. You know, you've got this mass exodus out of California and New York into generally the Southeast because it's always been viewed as kind of the cheap parts or people from California going to Utah and Colorado and Wyoming, North Dakota, and all those places where people don't generally live. Now, there are some barriers, which is weather and whatnot, but if potentially the opportunity is you have this new form, newfound money that creates these communities where people start to operate on those communities. Maybe that's the divide instead of like a civil war or instead of, you know, a geopolitical world war three. I mean, I'm of the belief that world war three has been happening for a decade. It's, it's cyber and nobody sees it. Um, and we're just kind of entering that phase where the average person understands what's going on with cybersecurity and they're seeing in the news wait, this guy said this on Monday, but now he's saying this on Friday and his friends are these people, which he said he didn't like last Wednesday, right? And so um, that's just kind of a game of Clue. And and you can go round and round because you kind of got a game of Monopoly going on at the same time. And that thing lasts for days and it could take everybody a long time to figure out who did what and what room with what, you know, uh, what utensil um, or sorry, what weapon. And I think one of the, the key things going kind of to unpack and, and think there's so circular economy, meaning, hey, everyone can kind of tap into their local community. You can build something that's kind of outside of of reliance on this bigger entity, right? So I think that is really, really interesting, something that I'm super passionate about. One of the things that has come up a lot has been like, obviously, the BlackRock ETF, 
Mm-hmm. And with the ETF, there's some there's some shortcomings as far as being able to actually use Bitcoin, right? So like the circular mm-hmm. economy thing there doesn't make sense because it's similar to like a stock at that point, right? Yep. You have no way to redeem it. You're going to get dollar IOUs. Maybe the number goes up. Great. But it's not necessarily going to give people the ability to really tap into kind of the strengths of Bitcoin. And so I want to talk about that for a second and kind of go in to where, you, you know, what do you think on the ETF? Is it a good, bad, indifferent thing for financial advisors? And then also the other piece of it of, you know, people talking about the ETF, they talk about, well, no one wants to write down, you know, 12 words. No one wants personal responsibility. And that kind of builds on our previous thing of like wealth preservation. That is taking personal responsibility saying we are going to take care of our family. So I come at this and I, I hear it and I'm like, well, I obviously believe a certain thing, but then I hear all these other people saying this other stuff. It's like, does no one want to take responsibility for any decision anymore? And they just want to outsource. And to me, I want to say, no, but then you continue to hear it. I get smacked with it that, you know, no one wants to be responsible for their own stuff anymore. They just want someone else to to do it for them. So uh, there's basically like three questions in there. So I'm going to start with thoughts on the ETF in BlackRock because they'll likely get approved. And is this a good or bad thing for Bitcoin? And yeah, why? it's hard to say. I mean, like as a staunch uh, believer of Bitcoin and, and what it can provide, um, I would lean towards the maxi route as a bad thing because in any asset that you want to own the assets and you own some proxy even like a micro strategy well he's levered to the nines let's just say it doesn't moon he's gonna have to unwind right so when you don't if you want to own corn and you own ious and your neighbor's lot of coin corn and it either goes bad or he just burns it up or he sells it all out from underneath you there's a different set of consequences that come with that so if you ever want to own an asset and you don't own that asset then you're facing some kind of trouble at some point it's just a matter of when and you may never see the downside so from that perspective i don't like the etf um but i'm not naive enough to think that bankers don't have unlimited amounts of capital unlimited amounts of power and sway within the regulatory system to pull off what they want. I mean, they did this with robo-advisory. So a lot of times I just say, hey, it's FinTech 2.0. Robo-advisory was going to eat the remaining fees that existed on desk. Uh, Wall Street is like, no, you're not. So they stymie it, put it out of business basically. And then in 2016-17, desk revenue started to go to zero. And so they're like, uh, we got to do something. So we're going to wrap all this kind of robo advisory, all this fintech into our banks and be like, look, we're fintech companies too. Look at us. We we knew this all along. And so you're seeing that with Bitcoin and the ETF and, and what Yellen saying and Powell saying, well, crypto is money, right? So bankers are really good at figuring out how to stymie markets and then taking them over and folding them in and saying, look, we get it too. Um, later right they just push back push back so i don't like it from that perspective um but the way that wall street and TradFi and just the average client looks at it as an asset class so you got the masses see it as an asset class the maxi true bitcoin people just see it as this is the gold bug right so it's kind of gold all over again it's like well if you don't have the gold you don't have any money but the way the world is operated is you don't always have to only have the money. So there's some balance. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out. Um, my concern on that is, is um, kind of the, the wording around forks. 
right? So if you look at 21 million Bitcoin where there's not, there's 15 to 17 because 4 million or so are lost estimates. Uh, I think there's a million or so in Satoshi's wallet. So unless that entity or person decides to come back in and move those coins, they're lost. So that's 12 or so percent of Bitcoin. And then if you look at GLD, I think it's give or take 50 billion in assets. Wall Street can come up with that tomorrow. Okay, and especially if BlackRock gets approved and then the other 10 people are going to get approved right behind it, which means everybody that we know that doesn't want to deal with the seed phrase, what are they going to do? They're going to go buy one of these ETFs. So capital is not at all a problem. Um, Even in this capital constrained period that we're running into right now, we have been in for the last two years, VCs have come up with ungodly amounts of money to raise new funds to go deploy it. So for for VCs, bankers, uh, Wall Street in general, capital is not a problem. So if you got 50 billion there, that's another, I think it's 2 million Bitcoin. So another 10% gone. So now we're at 20 to 30%. And then Sprott Asset Management, which was an early mutual fund company out, I think they're out of Canada. Um, they did uh, They did gold where you can own it in IOU form, but you can actually call them up and say, hey, I have this many shares. That means I have X amount of gold. Deliver it here. What I, I don't know the process, but I came across them, I don't know, in 2010 or 2008 or something. So they're, I think, about $6 billion. And that's just one fund, right? So so there's another you know, 5% or so or, or 2% or whatever the number is. So all of a sudden these ETFs get approved and you're talking about 30% of the market being taken off the market. And that's before you get to hodlers. And so, you know, nodes make consensus, but what's to say that those groups don't go and filtrate and take over nodes and set consensus. Right. And so then that's where you potentially have this war between I am a true Bitcoin user. I'm going to just go live in the mountains and we're going to do this mining thing on Satoshi's vision. And then you have this Wall Street IOU version, which is like, hey, the reality is uh, an asset that doesn't move isn't an asset to liability. So we've got to have some velocity. And that's where I think we're still trying to figure out what is that line where you go from credit to leverage. And um, so you may have kind of the gold bug environment and then you have the Wall Street environment just rebuilt itself. I mean, if you look at like what Strike and uh, Nidig and, and Stone Ridge and, and these players that are setting up nodes around the world to create this this real network, it's the 1980s commercial bank build out. And so what that means is you start with all these players that are like rushing to send money around the world and that becomes 20 or 30 realistic options, which becomes 10, which becomes your big six. And so um, when I look at that, it's, it's basically the very same structure being built out. I think debt and delusions is a book that talks about that. Um, And just look at wall street history, you find it, but What's different is the fee, instead of it being 10%, maybe it's 6 because everybody's got to work for something. So I don't really know how it's going to shake out. Um, I'm a purist, so I think if you want to own something, you own that something spot. Um, 
But I understand that Wall Street's game is first create futures, then create options. Now you got your band that you can create profits and revenue and steady, steady price action. That, did that answer your? Yeah. Um, no, that's perfect. And it is good food for thought. And I know that there's lots of people that have various opinions on whether it's a positive or negative. So I think it's just curious to, it's going to get different takes. Uh, I mean, as a whole, I don't like it. Yeah. I'm with you. But, but I think part of living is realizing like what you can change and what you can't. Yeah. And then objectively looking at the probable outcomes and focusing on the ones that are most impactful to your wealth, whatever that means to you. Yeah. The optimistic take that I continue to hear from some folks within Bitcoin is when someone buys ETF, it goes up in value and they focus on that. And they're like, well, I can't actually own this thing and I'm told I should own it. And then they go and they, you know, maybe they buy it and they take self-custody at that point. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, that'd be great. We'll see if they have the opportunity to do that down the road, how it works, all that other stuff, which I think leads into my next question is, you know, a little birdie told me that you like collaborative custody and that kind of concept. And are there things missing? You think that's good setup? Cause you know, I like Eric Balchunas on Twitter. I've learned a ton from him over the years talking about how no one's ever going to write down 12 words and it's too hard. And it's like, well, if you can literally get in a car today, um, you can write down 12 you can words. Do it. Yeah. You can do it. So I, I kind of don't like that cop out, but you can remember all your family's birthdays. You can remember yeah, exactly. 12 like, You can, you can write this down. Um, t- talk to me a little about what you like about collaborative custody and um, what that looks like either today and what you think should look like in the future. So I think if I look at the cycles of Bitcoin and um, the first wave was just getting people to buy it, finding somebody to trade pizzas for Bitcoins, right? Proofing out that it can be used as money, it can be used as payments. The second wave, um, and uh, that goes all the way up to the, the 2017. So 2017 top, what was clear to me looking at the footprints and the trades was somebody big is in there buying and it's not just a big hodler. It's institutions because there were things in the charts that showed up that never had been there before. Uh, and you only see in traditional asset classes. So that was the thing for me to be like, all right, so this Bitcoin thing has legs um, or, or more conviction that it has legs, but it's like, what's missing? It was on ramps. You have to have ways to get dollars into Bitcoin. And at that point, it was basically a pairs trade, which are very confusing. Um, there's no ability to say, I bought this thing at X dollars went back to dollars and bought this other thing at X dollars. Um, and so that was all vetted out. Um, uh, and then we had the 2020 runs like, Oh, cool. We, we, exchanges are easy. I understand that as I have, um, you know, uh, I, I've got stable coins that create that unit to go between things and, and the on and off ramps are very easy. They're very similar to traditional financial markets, which because the people that built those markets stepped out and started building these markets with developers, right? And so if I look at the next wave, where's the product, right? What is the the iPhone moment? What is that thing that is going to make Bitcoin be a utility globally or a product globe, globally? And I don't think we know that answer. I think that that will come. You know, if TCP IP is the base layer to the internet and email kind of started things, and then you got everything that we use today in e-commerce was developed kind of in 97 in some form, and they all failed, right? And so 
we've got to have that kind of application layer, other protocols tapping into the Bitcoin protocol to make it useful to create businesses that generate revenue. Economies don't grow if businesses don't generate revenue. Now, how you divvy out the shares of the revenue, that's what broken in the dollar economy, right? Because the people that set up the business, they rightfully own all the revenue. But when you employ tens of thousands of people and the revenue doesn't flow down to where they can feed their families and they can go buy things that they need at the store without impoverishing them in some way, or that just imbalance gets out of out of whack, that economy breaks and that revenue system is broken. And so that's what we're trying to fix. But we still don't have that thing for Bitcoin because storage is important. But as you said, most people kind of don't want to do it. So I think that... You're seeing it with Fetty, you're seeing it with Multisig, you're seeing it with, you know, the Unchains and all those guys that really just look like a 1920s Merrill Lynch, right? New technology, new forms of custody. And I think when we when we fix that bridge, that's where masses come in because I think we learn one thing from cloud and internet networks, it's the average person doesn't want to mess with that stuff. Right. And so in ninety seven to two thousand three you're messing around with your own home server and you're like, dude, I just got attacked and I just lost all my stuff or, you know, it got locked up and, you know, that sort of thing. So people said, hey, this is cool. I, I'm a sales guy for this or I'm a butcher or I cut lawns or I'm a middle management in corporate America. I can make a lot more money and build a lot more wealth focusing on that because that's what my talent is. It's not sitting at home for six hours trying to figure out why this server won't give me access or, or how to host my files. And so we just put everything in the cloud and then we realize why that's bad. So now we're just in that point where it's like, Hey, let's bring everything out of the cloud and put it on a node and have all these file storage where I own it. And I have the keys and all this. And I get that. And I, I a hundred percent agree with that's needed. And that's sort of where we are at the foundations of things getting reset. But 90%, of global citizens aren't going to do that because like what you talked about, they want somebody to point the finger at. Now I think we also have to realize that, Hey, if you want somebody to point the finger at, we're just going to end up in this environment where everything continues to get more expensive money debases, it becomes worthless. So we all have to find a balance where we can take responsibility too. And I think possibly that's the next wave. What is that balance? What is that product? that gives you a little bit of both. And so collaborative custody, some form of custodial relationship is what the average person wants. And feeding the masses is how you get to just, you know, big time growth, a lot of revenue, a lot more opportunity, um, rather than saying that everybody's going to become some form of server admin in the next four or five years, 10 years. And maybe they do. Um, I, I just, Seems like it's a bit hard for most people yeah. where they can best spend their time. Yep. It is. I, I talk about it a lot too. A, you can't borrow someone else's Bitcoin conviction going through, you know, drawdowns and different things. And the other thing is you can't get the intellectual interest in wanting to just learn all this stuff because a lot of people, they just aren't there. They don't want mm -hmm. to learn, mm -hmm. right? They're like, I like the the growth of my purchasing power or the number go up and that's cool. But I don't want to worry about like wallets and all this other stuff. And I think, yeah, there's, there's a blend. And I, I do think financial advisors can come in and help educate and say, Hey, here's the trade-offs. Here's what you should do. Here's what I do. Here's what other people do and like show and teach and educate. 
I think that's a, a huge spot again to expand the services like you talked about earlier on with banking, right? Like it's not going to go away. It's just going to change. So maybe some of the services that advisors are offering are going to adjust over time and something that you can help with, right? If people are willing to pay for your time, they're going to learn and be educated from that. Um, kind of as we close, I have two, two last questions. What is, uh, what is a view that many in the Bitcoin space would disagree with you on that you hold that you're like, yeah, I think this is, this is pretty non-consensus, but I, I believe it. I, I think it's multiple fronts. I mean, I think one of them, um, I put a lot of stuff out about the leverage that was going on in the system in 2021. And um, it was clear in the charts. It was clear in a lot of different areas. It was clear if you look at base rates at that time were uh, in traditional markets where most of the money is, where most of the leverage is, 1%, 2%. And treasuries base rates in crypto markets were eight, nine percent GUSD, Tether, um, USDC, all those things. And so if you look at the base rate, that's the base rate. Anything over and above that is a hundred percent risk. And so my indicator for there being a lot of leverage in some way, shape, or form, which played out in 2022, were two things. It was Euro dollars and um the all this goofy lending, um, yield farming where you're like, hey, I'm making 17%. It's like, yeah, okay, so you're taking 100% risk on 100% of base rate or 90% of base rate, which meaning if USDC is base rate in that market is the quote-unquote risk-free rate and you're getting 17, then you're taking 100% risk for just an additional 8%. Trying to think that some kid in his mom's basement code is going to last. And as you see, there's bugs every day in all this code. Uh, which creates hacks and all that came collapsing. So one would be, that was an early one. That's obvious now. So people are going to lever just because we're greedy. Um, so I think navigating that. Um, the other one is is the custody thing. Um, I don't disagree that people should self-custody, but the reality is um, the average person, when they go to the store, they just want to swipe and go. Right or wrong, swipe and go. And so if we want mass adoption in Bitcoin and people can't do that and they've got to pre-plan their spending an hour in advance or two hours in advance or they got to just move too much stuff right now, people aren't going to do that. I mean, I think you see that, right? Americans aren't doing that. You know, part of it is you got tax laws that, that prevent that. I mean, why do you want to create a taxable event every time you spend something? Right. And I know they moved at 600 bucks, but a wealthy person spending 600 bucks is like, you know, an average person spending a dollar. Like they do that every hour. Um, so it's crossing that bridge. I mean, that's where, on the one hand, something like Fetty or some of these other systems make sense. But to get those systems, you're reintroducing SBFs, you're reintroducing Madoffs, you're reintroducing trust. In, in my money, giving it to somebody else, let them have the keys to print a bunch of money that I can use on a liquid basis. So I think that's the one pushback area um, that I don't think people have fully objectively looked through that. I think they're like creatively speaking around the real risk to push whatever their interests are, which that's fine. You can be interested in that, but it's hard to sell it as like, Hey, look, this is a different system and there's no risk involved because mm -hmm. 
anytime you lock up your Bitcoin into some system where you don't hundred percent have control, you've, you've given over like the core principle of Bitcoin. Now the reality is to make Bitcoin liquid enough to make it usable. There's going to be somewhat, some of that. And I don't, I haven't seen anything yet that like fully convinces me that we've fully figured out that problem. Um, I think we will, because if you look at, you know, just, banking in general or if you look at where we've come since Bretton Woods or you look at the Swift network or you look at just the internet like the internet should have never supported 40 or 50 percent of 8 billion people but it does and and there were peaks and valleys to get there so I I think we'll get there and I think um, specifically the challenge in in 71 post 71 post 60s into the 70s was liquidity in a system and if you look at every financial crisis is always a liquidity issue and bitcoin just ran into that issue last year and so what they did was created sdrs special drawing rights um and and, and created sdrs to create this money that basically was bitcoin well in 2020 they levered those things to the nine they went for i forgot what the number is but they basically tripled the amount of SDRs and that's just money that countries trade um, but it's, it can't be used for anything but it's supposed to be digital money that they can transfer amongst each other and create loans off of uh, because traditional dollars and euro dollars are broken and so Bitcoin if you kind of read through the historical papers in the context of how all that happened solves a lot of those problems it, it just doesn't give bankers and political powers and, and um, you know, nation states, the power, which is a dynamic that are not comfortable with. So um, I think the broader thing there, the pushback is just kind of like, what's the right answer for custody? Um, and if we get in our different echo chambers, then we say, well, it's not real Bitcoin if you don't hold it, if you don't hold the keys. Well, it's, it's not usable if you don't hand the keys over to someone. So there's, there's this idea that uh, there's you know no trust involved. Well, there's no decision that we make on a daily basis that doesn't require some form of trust. If you get up in the morning and you decide to breathe, you trust that your house not going to be burnt down, that you're going to be able to go get in your car and go do your things. So we can't take trust out of anything. You're going to trust that your your wife or kids are going to you know do whatever it is that you need them to do, and and that filters all the way down to our money, like. You trust if you do one of these collaborative custody, these multi, you're trusting that that technology works. You're trusting that a new technology that we don't know all the ins and outs of isn't going to break. Uh, if you put your money in just a single sig traditional, you're trusting that that technology is going to work. You're trusting that wherever you stored the seed phrase isn't going to get stolen or burnt down or, or whatever. Or, um, so there's always trust. I mean, there's different trade-offs with it. And I think that's probably where I would push back the most. I mean, I don't, I try to objectively look at these things. And a lot of times I think it comes across as just pushing back. But I think if you look at every cycle, all the big narratives that created the memes, that created the FOMO, turn out to be basically wrong in some form or fashion. Um, and that, and that's okay. It's just, again, we talked about early on, one of the big things is keeping track of our emotions. 
And so when when our emotions get so bold up that we think Bitcoin's going to a million, it's that's probably the end of that run. And when and when they get so bearish right now where you're literally seeing a lot of influencers being like, oh, I don't know if I'm ever gonna make it through this bear, it's so much longer than the rest of them. It's not even half as long as they are. Right. And so those are just narratives we tell ourselves to feel emotionally okay, but um, that's what I push back on probably the most. All right. I love it. Um, the one thing with Fetty, and I, for a lot of people listening that are maybe advisors that don't know Fetty, one of the key things there is that anyone that holds the keys there, it's within punching distance, which I love that term, right? Mm-hmm. So it's someone that you can go see. So bringing it back to kind of community oriented, where at mm-hmm. least there's some of the social pressures to hopefully address that. But you're right. There's always going to be a trade-off. I think the answer with custody is going to be, here's lots of options, which one fits best for you in your situation and not saying it's this or nothing, uh, Mm -hmm. I think is important. Uh, What resource would you recommend for financial advisors to learn more about Bitcoin? Do you have a favorite, somewhere you'd point them to, an article, podcast, book? I mean, I think, you know, podcasts like this, advice on Bitcoin. (laughs) Outside of this excellent resource. (laughs) Uh, You know, selfishly, I talk a lot about it in Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, but that's probably not important. Um, I think just, coming to terms with what's your meaning of money and in your circles, what does that, and, and, and what is your meaning of wealth is a big deal. Um, you can get that from scripture. You can get that from Saifedean Amoose, like his book, uh, the Bitcoin standard gets pushed around a lot. That is huge. Um, again, I think the fourth turning stuff, it's, it's, there's, uh, optimism within the pessimism, pessimism. Um, that the sovereign individual, a lot of these things that that talk about what the average person just kind of wants to stick their head in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist. Those are the places in this kind of environment we should be at least acknowledging and kind of saying, well, oh, this is what happened. How did that play out? Because in some form or fashion, it just seems like that's the environment we're in. So you don't have to go down the rabbit hole of the negativity, but I think we do need a solid understanding of how humans most likely will react because the stories that are playing out have played out for thousands of years. And the people and things that cause those um, uproars or, or beautiful times are always different. The, the psychological behaviors are the same. And, I spend most of my time as a technical analyst because price tells you everything you need to know before a headline ever will. And um, to a lot of people, it's just voodoo, magic lines on the chart. Um, But it's human psychology. And so in traditional markets, a lot of that's eroded because of the manipulation, not in a bad way, but it's just numbers are massaged, prices are massaged, and it doesn't work as well. In Bitcoin markets, it's much easier to see, but that will change over time. So I think. To kind of end it, where can financial advisors help and how does that, our roles change over time? It's just right now we're just in the education phase because the regulatory risk are too high or aren't defined where you can just point someone in a direction because the average user is still looking for ways to not take responsibility. And so we can only educate about the realities of what money is, what wealth is, and how these things play out within the larger banking system and networks over time. And 
you know, next stage, hopefully we get to products that can generate revenue, um, that can provide those tools uh, for end users. And I think we'll get there. Uh, I think optimistically, I think we will get there. Kane, thank you so much. I'm going to link to Substack, your podcast, you on Twitter. Any closing thoughts outside of that? Anything else you want to leave people with? No, Isaiah, I appreciate you uh, having me on today. Enjoyed it. Um, I think for just the average person is, you know, go seek, seek out, find information about things you care about and, you know, dive in, kind of let your fears go and, and, and get in and see what it's about. Don't just take somebody else's word for it. I mean, have trusted individuals that you can uh, rely on for good and bad information, but for yourself, just dive in and, and figure out if it's for you or not. Perfect. Great spots. Put a pin in it. Take All care. right. Thanks, man.